If the political leadership of the UK, the United States, other places pass a windfall tax on oil companies, we will be facing futures of severe distress and death. I gotta explain this all to you. Listen, this is a very serious situation. My larger view is this. The people who are currently running the system, um, they have a lot of motivations, they have a lot of interests, but they don't have a lot of context. And I think they're really messing with something they don't understand. The energy system is everything. As I am fond of saying, energy is the master resource. If you have energy, lots of other things are possible. Without energy, things are not as possible. This is something Europe is gonna experiment with, struggle with here in the winter of 2022, coming into 2023, but it could get a lot worse. And here's how it could get a lot worse. We're gonna turn now to this idea, do we really have greedy oil companies? That's a very popular misconception that's out there right now amongst, well, a lot of people who've been marketed to, they've been told that, Maybe they heard it on TV. Listen, as you know, context is everything. So I'm coming here to you with news, information you can't afford to live without early as always. So I gotta get this to you now before um, it goes too much further. So here's a question from a subscriber. This is from Earthiest. Earthiest is a Peak Insider. It's a level of subscription at our website, Peak Prosperity, asking Chris or anyone, could you provide me with a few bullet points and or graphs on why low supply slash high prices isn't the fault of oil companies who are holding leases and not drilling just so they can make record profits, end quote. So here's the idea. There's this story out there that oil companies, they have leases, they have places, they could just go get more oil, but they're not. And they're doing that on purpose to hold oil prices high to gouge you, the consumer. That's not what's happening. And I'm gonna show you why that's the case. So. Let's go there. First, this is kind of how the story's getting spun. In the UK, they just passed this idea of a, uh, not the idea, the reality of a windfall tax on oil and gas companies. What is a windfall tax, you ask? Same thing, BBC answers it for us. Hey, it's an extra levy imposed by a government on a company, and the idea is to target firms which benefit from something they were not responsible for. In other words, a windfall. They say here energy firms are getting much more money for their oil and gas than they were last year. And this was not something they had anything to do with because it was or is the crisis in Ukraine that drove up the price of their products. That was only a tiny bit true. I've presented the evidence here before. It's certainly an additive feature on this, but if you look at when and where oil prices and gas, natural gas prices started to climb, that was early in 2021. And of course, Russia didn't invade in Ukraine until February of 2022. So what was causing those gas prices to rise and the, and the oil prices to rise before? Supply and demand, standard stuff. There were a lot of disruptions coming about after the whole COVID, the lockdowns, all of the uh, various things that happened. And by the way, we're facing the same thing in the oil and gas business that we're seeing in lots of other industries, gray hair, people with the experience are retiring out, they're facing labor shortages, they're facing inflation, they're facing an uncertain future and a hostile political climate with President Biden and now the UK saying, you greedy oil companies, we want you to get more oil, we're gonna punish you. Uh, they're doing all these things. And of course they've said flat out, Biden has said flat out, he wants to end fossil fuels. So it's a hostile environment, guess what? You show me the incentive, I'll show you the outcome. 
That is a Charlie Munger saying, I believe in it fully. If you take a whole industry and the industry runs on capital, meaning money invested in it, and you tell that industry that you wanna put it out of business and you're the president of the United States, you should not then act too surprised when not that much investment flows into that space. And it was already a challenging environment for a lot of reasons. We'll go there. Now, so, but here you notice, look what they said here. They said um, BP made $8.2 billion or 7.1 billion pounds worldwide between July and September, which was more than double its profit from the same period in 2021. Ha <laughs> ha, greedy company, it doubled its profits. Look at that. Now, <sighs> mainstream media, BBC, you doth protest uh, too much in this case, or you doth disappoint as per usual. Let's look at this, here's context. Why don't they present context? Here I have both 2021 and the 2020 columns. They're comparing the gains in profits to 2021 in 2022. They're saying, wow, they doubled the profit from here, but what if they'd gone back to 2020 and noted that the basic earnings per share down here at the bottom, get my drawing tool out, because you know how much I like to use that. Yeah, so you get this basic earnings per share down here. It was minus $6 a share for the entire year of 2020. So that was a very bad year. Now, guess how many times politicians in the UK in 2020 said, you know, we should really pass an anti-windfall uh, profit sharing, regrouping uh, sort of an exercise to top off BP's coffers because of something happening outside of its control, inarguably. That $6 loss based on the lockdowns from politicians that crushed the economy, crushed oil demand, that was totally out of BP's control. And if you remember here, a windfall pertains to something when a firm benefits from something that is not, that it was not responsible for. Well, what about when it loses money for something it's not responsible for? That's when the politicians close their eyes, plug their ears, go a little quiet and don't say nothing about it. So. Listen, I'm not here to defend BP, say it's the greatest company in the world, any of that. I'm telling you that this is a very asymmetrical situation, and here's the deal. If you take from a capital-rich, capital-intensive company during the good years, but you don't give back during the bad years like 2020, eventually you find they don't have enough capital or interest or motivation to go out and find more of the stuff that we want and need, which is oil and natural gas, because everything that you hold dear about your life, everything, everything, the warmth of your house, the food on your table, the people who travel to your house for holidays, the places you go on vacation, the construction of your house, your job, all depend on fossil fuels. We are not yet ready to wean ourselves off of them. We can try, but we're not at all ready to switch over to alternative energies. Longer story there, not my intent for today, but this windfall tax, is absolutely going to take away from future supply of oil and gas. Remember, I tell you things early. Be prepared that in the next one, two, three years, there are going to be legitimate shortages of fossil fuels, principally oil, as well as natural gas, due to these really bad policies right here. So these are, uh, remember, once is an accident, twice is coincidence, three times enemy action. Um, the level of uh, actions that we see now against the fossil fuel industry by Western powers principally, mostly Europe, US, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, right? 
These are the countries that are now principally interested in, in, in taking the fossil fuel industry and putting metaphorical bullets into it. And then these are going to be the same countries, I guarantee you, in a year or two or three, when, not if, but when, they encounter massive shortages of these things, are going to discover that your economy 100% is linked to the flow through of high net energy fossil fuels. And that's what's about to be tanked here. All right, so this is kind of dumb, but let's go there. What is a windfall? I thought this was interesting, so I like to learn things. I'm a constant learner. The etymology of windfall, it's wind plus fall. The origin is during the golden age of wooden shipbuilding, many English landowners were forbidden to fell and sell timber as it was reserved for building ships for the Royal Navy. However, there was a loophole. If a tree was blown down, the landowner could use or sell the timber to whoever he wished, hence the term windfall, meaning a financial bonus that you had nothing to do with. It was the wind. And the tree fell down. Um, so that's the, the English version of windfall. And, um, you know, its current use just means a, a sudden large benefit, especially a sudden or unexpectedly large amount of money, as from lottery or sweepstakes winnings or an unexpected inheritance or gift. It sort of expanded, but the original intent was literally windfall. Now, that's English. When I was in Iceland in 2009, I was talking over there about the great credit crisis that was unfolding. And I was informed by a, this Icelandic individual. He said, oh, our term for windfall is falreki. And I was like, what does that mean, actually? Because falreki, they were applying the falreki to their bankers and charging them with windfall crimes, as it were. But originally in Iceland, the etymology of that world literally means beached whale. because that was that was the windfall of the time. It was like, through no action of your own, this whale showed up and 10, 20, 30, 40 tons of tasty blubber food just showed up. And when the word went out that there was falreki, people would come from as far as they could, bringing baskets and, and knives, and, and they would divvy that up. And you know why that was? It's because once upon a time, Iceland was extremely energy poor. I mean, now it's got its geothermal, but at the time, I mean... It was a long time people were literally facing starvation all the time, living in their grass-thatched roof huts. And when the Hafalreki came, hey, that was a really good moment. Now, that's the etymology there. Just kind of fascinating to go through that. We'll get back to our story here in just a second. But first, I want to let you know, Black Friday this year, uh, Peak Prosperity, we're running a special. So if you've ever wondered, hey, what are they talking about over there? in the community, in the tribe that we have. Beautiful group of people, by the way. Amazing, very smart, uh, very curious. If you really want to know what we're talking about, hey, we're going to make it as easy as possible. You can get a month of access. Try it on us. What do you have to lose? Well, a dollar. What are the steps? You go to that link, peakprosperity.com membership. You would select Peak Insider as your uh, option, and you would enter this code when you go to checkout, Black Friday. 22. Hey, it's a buck. And we're just running this for this week. Give it a try if you want. We know that you're going to like it. So very confident in that and glad to offer it. We would love to have more people coming over, being part of this and participating because, hey, look, my goal here is for everybody to be as resilient as possible to avoid the pain that I know is coming because we got dumb leadership doing dumb things. And uh, we're going to have to band together. Education, knowledge, 
action. Those are the three things that we really need and we help you find all of those. Now, back to our main story. Remember, again, I don't remember in the US any politicians calling to bail these companies out. This was a horrible period of time. This is cumulative North American E&P, Exploration and Production Oil Company, bankruptcy filings by quarter. And look at this, over nearly 250 filings for bankruptcy, 250 separate companies between the first quarter of 2015 and the third quarter of 2020. And you can see them accumulate over time. Here's seven bankruptcies. That's what this little light tan bar means on top of that green bar. Seven there, 17, 14 companies, 17, 34 companies in a single quarter, 34 companies. Could be small, could be medium-sized, some of them pretty large, a lot of employees. This was really, really dark times in here because remember oil went down for like 30 bucks a barrel down here. Um, and this is just how it went. So there was a lot of bankruptcies. It was a capital destroying business. Overall, nearly $300 billion of cumulative bankruptcy in debt was pretty much distressed. It didn't go to zero. That $297 billion didn't go to zero, but it went off on pennies on the dollar. That was a lot of losses. That was real capital that was lost. $297 billion is a lot of cashola. So when I say a capital intensive business, this is a sign of it. This is what's involved. So these oil companies, they need a lot of cash to drill a well. They'll go out, they'll borrow it. If they don't have it in cash flow, they almost never have it just parked in cash flow from operations. So they'll borrow it, they'll drill the well, they'll make up the difference, take extraordinary risk, pay off the, the debt, keep moving. They've got equity holders as well. They want some uh, return for their money. This is what it looked like in 2020, though. This is how dark it got. These here are oil and gas bankruptcies in 2020. Every one of these little dots right here. So it's either a producer on the top row. This is oil field services. So these are people providing sand, drill rigs, things like that. Or it was midstream down on the bottom. And these are uh, pipeline companies, things like that. But this was just wipeout after wipeout after wipeout, really heavily concentrated in this zone right here. So these are a lot of um, bankruptcies going on here and it got really bad. And remember the price of oil right here actually went negative for a period of time here in, uh, uh, in 2020. It was, it was a bad moment. So this is what they were up against. And by the way, this in the United States, the shale companies, the shale oil, we are the swing producer in the United States of the global sort of oil reserve of late. President Biden has been releasing the United States, my strategic petroleum reserve, and uh, just releasing a million barrels a day out of that. So that's been the swing producer, but that's really eating into the principal bank account of the United States. Um, otherwise, it's the shale companies. Here's why shale takes so much capital. Check this out. These are cohorts. These are years. Each one of these colored areas is a year. So this orange stuff right here, this would be 2012, for instance, right? Um, and so what, what we're seeing here is that each year they drill thousands of wells, right? In shale wells. So this is in the Eagleford formation. And you can tell two things from this. First, you have to drill a lot of wells each year. And second, what would happen if they say here at the end of 2014 at 2015, what if they, if we drilled no wells that next year, production would have gone from here all the way to here and 
fallen off by about 45%. This is the reality of the shale well fields. Even though we've been drilling in, the, in that shale wells there since uh, 2008, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, if you stop drilling at any point in time there, 2014, that next year, oil production out of that formation would drop 45%. And you can see that's true for any given year. Here it is saying the same thing, but we've made it, we've backed it all the way up to 2013. What happens if we stop drilling here? Well, come down to about er, there again. It's a big, big, big drop off. So this is the nature of the shale fields. What does it take to drill thousands of wells? Money, lots of money. These wells are costing anywhere from five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, or more million dollars per well. And so if you need to drill a thousand wells and they're a million bucks a piece, well, that's easy. That's a billion dollars. What if they're $10 million? That's easy. It's $10 billion. We can do the math in our head. So that's that right there shows you how much capital is required to keep pouring back into these things just so you can keep production from not falling off a cliff. All right, that's the nature of it. That's the Eagleford. This is the Permian. This is our largest, best. This, the Permian is just a world-class shale basin. It's amazing. The Permian field is really something to be uh, really admirable of, uh, admirers of. So here, what's easier to see, this is a, a given year here, and here's the next year. And if, again, if there had been no drilling from this point forward, this is how far all the prior years oil production would have fallen to. Again, call it half. Every single year just requires more and more and more and more drilling just to keep things flat. All right, so that's the nature of the business. So now let's imagine we're back with the oil windfall tax of saying, oh, 35%. Let's just take 35% right off the top of any profits that these companies are making here in this year. Let's not make them whole for hundreds of billions of losses in the past. Let's not look at how much debt they had to take on so they didn't go completely bankrupt so they could keep operations going. Let's just look today how much profits are these companies making in this moment and say, that's unfair. We need some of that back. It's fine, but you have to understand the nature of this business. It is a capital-intensive business. If you take money away from it and cast dispersions upon the industry saying, we don't like you and we'd rather be done with you, you're going to inhibit outside investors from saying, maybe I'll take a chance and put some money over there. I'd rather put it, I guess, not there, right? And so that ultimately is going to lead to less drilling. And as I'm showing you here, less drilling leads to less output not a hard story to understand unless you're a politician. Then it seems darn near impossible to understand. Now, oil profits also vary enormously by the resource or by the play. Guess what? Drilling way offshore in the North Sea with giant waves is very expensive compared to sidling up to a you know gentle on-land thing down in Texas somewhere. They have very different cost structures. At any rate, what you can see here is sort of this is called a cost curve. By the different types of plays, you can tell it generally goes like this, right? From least expensive to most expensive. Now, guess where humans concentrated all of their early activity? That's right, on the cheap stuff. We high-graded, we, we picked the low-hanging fruit, spent a lot of time down here on this end of the curve, drilling the easy stuff, drilling in places where you could already see oil sort of boiling to the surface, where it wasn't that far underground, where you didn't do exhaustive, exorbitant, crazy things like 
slant drilling and horizontal drilling and fracking and all that stuff. But like if you could just stick a straw on the ground on land, straight, vertical, and get oil out, hey, we did that. Almost all of those places are already gone. Certainly they're gone in Europe. Certainly they're gone in the United States. Certainly they're gone in Russia. Certainly they're gone in the Middle East with some smallish exceptions, but the big fields have all been found. And so that's what's on the far end of that curve on that side is the cheap stuff. And out here, you can see, well, look at this. Um, if we were gonna do, say, um, extra heavy oil, or we're gonna do deep water, they say here the cost, break-even cost could be anywhere from, say, a low of 20 to a high of, say, 80 for this, but, this is the break-even price only, and it and includes just the cost of getting that oil. Once the oil has been found, what does it cost to get that out, like in terms of drilling all that? But it doesn't include the future costs entirely of how you have to go and find more. So here's how we need to think about this. Rick O'Malley, a self-described 42 years of oil and gas operations and management, I believe it, because he described this on a chat I was looking at in preparation for this. You can see it down there. It was on Quora. Com. Rick said, hey, there are actually two costs that matter. They're often confused. This is what got confused in the windfall tax discussion. One is called the lifting cost, and this is the cash cost to produce an incremental barrel from an existing well. So all the discovery, and by the way, discovery isn't like, hey, we know there's oil there. We drill, oh, found it, right? Um, often there's a lot of dry holes. And those have to be amortized into the wells where you actually hit something. Sometimes you hit little tiny pockets of poor grade oil, and that's not as exciting as giant finds of really tasty oil. And so once you put all of that into a mix, that incremental barrel cost, that lifting cost is not really that relevant. It just tells you what does it cost to get that stuff out of the ground, given that the well is already producing. The other cost in purple down there is the finding and development cost and is effectively the cost to replace a barrel of production as reserves or inventory. <clears throat> so this is the oil business. They are not growing carrots where you can just, they, you get another crop next year. Once you find a well, it begins, set a timer, it begins its journey and descent towards depletion and ultimate decline to zero. <clears throat> so you have to keep finding new stuff. So there's a whole budget for what does it take for us to go and find new stuff in the oil companies like for BP, they have bad years where they lost a bunch of money. 2020, very bad year. They lost a lot of money. They took on debt. They have to hold some of that cash that they had now have from the flush years to make up for that year and all the future finding the upstream oil and gas development and production finding that they're gonna have to go through. All right, so that's what we find there. And by the way, don't forget, these are companies, so they also probably have debt on the books. They probably also have dividends and things like that. He continues on. He says, a company can have positive cash flow as long as it covers lifting and administration costs, rents, and salaries. But if it's not covering finding and development costs, it's just holding a protracted going out of business sale. Now, what did the UK politicians do with the 35% windfall tax? What they're really saying is, hey, while you're here and your cash flows are good, based on your old fines, we want 35% of that profit that comes off of that. But they're not saying, hey, uh, we understand that you might have increasingly lean years of trying to replace those existing barrels that are coming out of the ground with new fines because guess what? That's getting harder and harder to do. Guess what? We've been through the easy stuff. 
the new stuff that they have to go out and find is more dilute, deep, distant, etc. It's very hard to come by, so you just have to factor that in. But we still want all that oil coming out of the ground, and everybody's counting on it. And against this backdrop, I have to say, this whole idea of putting sanctions on Russia, which has aging fields, needs a lot of you know Western expertise and help for its infield oil drilling, filling, backfilling, pressurizing, uh, reservoir management. Not going to happen. Russia's going to have declining output because it's going to lack the ability and the capital and the expertise to make its oil fields do what we would all want them to do, which is produce oil while we start to figure out how we're going to transition away from oil. Because guess what? We're going to do that. We have to because the oil's going to run out someday. But we'd rather do that on our own terms rather than some other crazy set of terms, be those geological or geopolitical. Geology says, hey, this stuff's getting harder and harder to find, and there's less and less of it each year as we use it up. As well, the geopolitical says, maybe we shouldn't like take the number two exporting country in the world and demonize them and sanction them so that they can't effectively produce oil so that we crash oil markets. As well, maybe we shouldn't alienate the Middle East, which is the last best tasty stuff left anywhere on the planet. So that's the story there. And by the way, when I showed you these costs where it might be anywhere from, I don't know, 20 to 80 bucks to get this stuff on deep water out, these are lifting costs. These do not include the actual cost of having to go out and find new stuff. This is an old chart, more than a year old. It doesn't include the inflation that has to stack on top of this. So generally speaking, if we had 10% inflation, this energy business is very inflation sensitive. Why? Because it uses a lot of steel, a lot of labor and a lot of energy to go and do what it does, which is find more energy. So uh, if any of these things, if you said, wow, we had 10% inflation last year, you'd have to take all these bars and basically move them up 10 or more percent because of the nature of this business. So why is this important? Well, here's why it's important. Every country still needs oil to function. If you want your economy to function, you need oil for now. This comes from the U.S. Federal Reserve Dallas Regional um, hub for, for the Federal Reserve's one of the 12 districts. They had here a special question and comment section. They asked some exploration and production or E&P firms. What do you see going forward? Well, they said it flat out. This is what came from these E&P firms, from their executives. They said, one, in green government animosity towards our industry makes us reluctant to pursue new projects, just like we've been talking about. And uh, they said, second down, second bullet, while the tariff exemption on steel from Ukraine is a step in the right direction, Ukraine's mills are unable to quickly restart production. This will not increase steel product availability in the near term. We need to remove or reduce tariffs and quotas from other countries to increase availability. Why? Because they're facing a steel shortage in the two and seven eighths inch pipe that they use to drill, right? So they need that stuff. But check out this third bullet point. This is really an important comment from an insider. Don't believe me. Maybe believe this anonymous person who left this comment at the Dallas Fed. The real energy crisis isn't even here yet, they wrote. U.S. Energy Information Administration, or EIA, forecasts U.S. oil production to average 12.5 million barrels per day for the next 30 years. This is all but impossible. Shale will likely, or shale oil will likely tip into terminal decline in about five years as the main shale plays run out of locations. 
This is one of the most explosive and important sentences you can possibly understand. For the United States particularly, for the world more generally, when the United States gets into terminal decline in shale, it's going to be out there very aggressively trying to compete for its oil on the open market. United States, 5% of the world's population consuming 25% of the world's oil. So the United States is going to feel a little entitled about this. Think of the ramifications of there not being enough oil out there for everybody. The price is going to spike. But what happens if price alone doesn't get you the oil you think you need or deserve? Obviously, that gets very dicey geopolitically. All wars in history have been resource wars. Maybe one or two exceptions. But pretty much they're all resource wars. At the end of the day, looking for food, which is the ultimate chemical energy that humans run on, in this day and age, looking for oil, which we convert it into the food that fuels us. All right. So, again, shale will likely tip into terminal decline in about five years as the main shale plays run out of locations. Unfortunately, by then, most of the individuals with incumbent knowledge about offshore and international development will have retired. The brain drain in the industry will create a real and much larger crisis in the mid to late 2020s. Hey, that's a little bit later from now, but you're hearing it here early. This gives you enough time. Honestly, the mid-2020s is going to be here like that. There's a lot of things we all individually and as communities need to do to get ready for that moment. What am I talking about here? I'm talking about shortages of actual diesel and gasoline. I'm talking about very expensive. You think 5 6 $7 a gallon is expensive? Double those numbers and then double them again. That's what I'm talking about here. Crazy talk, right, Chris? Nobody would ever pay the equivalent of 500 a barrel for oil. <laughs> yeah, they would. When you see how much energy is in that and how much work it does, yeah, you would. I would. Um, and that's just the nature of the beast. So this is really important stuff. Why is it not being talked about? Because we don't have serious leadership. We have unserious leadership. They're more interested right now in figuring out how they can get us to except a central bank digital currency, maybe a universal basic income, not travel that much, maybe dial our consumption down, maybe rent things, not own anything, but be happy. How about crickets? This is actually the backdrop for why you're hearing all of those other statements. If you don't understand the resource story, the energy story in particular, oil specifically, you don't understand why do they people want me to own nothing but be happy? Why do they say suddenly we all should eat crickets? Because they're fully cognizant in this information. They get it. This is really important stuff. So I'm sharing it with you today. Um, and by the way, at the second half of Earthius's comment here says, uh, I'm at a farming conference and this came up in some of the more liberal circles. Conspiracy theorists was also thrown around to destroy the credibility of anyone who would suggest government intervention has played any role. And I'm one of those people who thinks government intervention has played a role in oil prices. But what about this idea that conspiracy theorist was thrown around to destroy the credibility. Listen, I have a view on this. Anybody who slings the term conspiracy theorist around as a showstopper, well, let me tell you what I think about them. Uh, I think this. I think such a person who uses that term is non-persuasion capable. And that means that I consider them to be an NPC. If you use conspiracy theorist as a means of avoiding a difficult conversation, listen, you're just not a serious person. You're not persuasion capable. You're not interested in having an actual conversation. That's fine. 
just be that way. Just tell somebody, I'm emotionally unable to handle this content. I'd rather not talk about it right now. Instead of trying to denigrate them by proving your mental superiority by saying, you're a conspiracy theorist, which is my fancy way of saying, I'm smarter than you. You're not. If you can't handle information, that's totally fine. But if you want to stop a conversation by saying, you're a conspiracy theorist, that means you're non-persuasion capable and you are not interested in having a conversation, which is not our tribe. And if you want to hear more about how our tribe thinks and you find any of this resonant for you, you are going to love what you're finding over here. Give us a month. We'll show you what we're up to. You get that first month here for just a buck. Insider, Peak Insider, you select that option. You will get access to everything. And by the way, I'm putting out tons of extra content every week, all the time. We have extra articles, extra videos for our insiders. But most importantly, we have a community of people there. That's what I've done. I've run a flag up the pole and said, hey, gather here if you want to have interesting, informative, wide-ranging, open, respectful conversations where we learn from each other so that we can get ready for this future that's coming in time. Clear out the cobwebs, find out what's important, take action. That's what we're all about. And by the way, in part two today, for my inside subscribers and information scouts and everybody, it, this is what I'm talking about. The, we got to talk about this thing that just came out for the G20. Um, they've thrown down the gauntlet. They've made it very clear what's about to happen here. So um, we got to talk about it because it's go time. This is what we're talking about in part two. Until then, thank you everybody for being here. Thank you for listening. It is always a pleasure. And uh, if you want to come and join and try us out for a month, hey, it's just a buck. Love to have you. But if you do come, my request is that you come and leave a comment and engage and check out uh, and add to the community we've got. That's all I have for you today. I'll have more next week, of course. We'll see you then. Bye and take care and good luck.